0: Well, good morning. Uh, it is good to uh, have the opportunity to bring God's word to us this morning. Um, if we, uh, if we haven't, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, uh, my name is Murray Nickel, um, and I've been given the privilege of serving in our youth ministry, uh, ministering to our seventh to twelfth graders as well as their families. Um, my wife, Addie, and I, we, we uh, as you know, we all moved here last August, so we just passed our one-year anniversary here at Redeemer this past month, and I just i just can't say how often we are just taken aback with thankfulness to God for bringing us here and for so quickly rooting us in this church and, and in this city. We, we were surprised at how at home we feel here, even after just one year. Um, well, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn with me to Matthew 22. Uh, verses 41 to 46, and as you do that, uh, I want to share a quick story with you. When I was a sophomore in college, uh, I received an email that was addressed to Murray Nickel, but was not addressed to Murray Nickel. <laughs> it was not addressed to me. Uh, it was an email full of medical jargon that I that I could hardly pronounce, of medical equipment names, kept referencing some Christian nonprofit and the work, the medical work they were doing overseas. And as you might imagine, I was pretty confused because as a sophomore in college, I was not a part of a Christian nonprofit. Um, But I did some Googling and and, uh, found out the emails were meant to go to Murray Nickel MD, not Murray Nickel College Sophomore. And and for the last decade, this has actually continued. Uh, Every once in a while, I'll get emails intended for Murray Nickel MD. I've I've been sent emails inviting me on Israel trips. Uh, I've been sent emails for fundraising for this organization, I've, been sent, I've even been sent emails for curbside pickup confirmations, to the point that I finally found a way to get in touch over email with Murray Nickel, MD, and we shared a, a laugh over, over the situation, because as you can imagine, Murray Nickel is not the most common name. Um, but but why do I, why do I share this? Well, because each time that I get one of these emails, the person, who, the person on the other side, the person who's sending it, has assumed they know who they're dealing with. <laughs> they assume they know who's on the other side of the conversation. They have a set of assumptions regarding who it is that this email is going to. And the, and the sad fact is every time one of these emails ends up in my inbox, instead of the other Murray Nichols, those assumptions are exposed as, as seriously flawed. And I think that's what we find at the heart of Matthew 22. We're we're in this series, Questions in Jesus. The the hard questions that are either asked of Jesus or that Jesus asks of others. And and we've been in in Matthew 22 for the last few weeks. And our text today comes at the end of this debate Jesus has found himself in with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Each of these groups has been trying uh, to figure out whether Jesus is going to fall in line with them by lobbying questions at him. And at every turn, Jesus has been a source of frustration and confusion to these groups because he refuses to fit into the mold of what they expect of him. You see, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they they came to Jesus with all these assumptions of who he should be, That they were caught unaware as to who they were actually dealing with, just like the people on the other side of these emails. And and that's not just true of first century Pharisees, Sadducees, Jewish people. I think it's true of us as well. You know, whether we're brand new to the church or whether we've been in the church our whole lives, even if we count ourselves as part of God's people, I think there are all sorts of ways that we fail to understand who we are dealing with in the person of Jesus. And you know, we come to Jesus with all sorts of assumptions about what we think he must be. You know, all it takes is a, is a minute of scrolling through social media to see Jesus propped up as evidence for and against masking, for Republicans, for Democrats. You see, there, there are ways in which we find ourselves caught in the same trap as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish people of Jesus' time, coming to Jesus with all sorts of assumptions of who he should be and failing to reckon with who he is. And the question that Jesus asks today and the question that I want us to consider this morning is what happens when we do meet the reality of Jesus, when we do meet the real Jesus. So if you will read with me uh, Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions? Will you pray with me as we come to God's word? Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. And God, I simply ask that, that your spirit would speak to us by your word. And that God, that you would, you would impress upon us the question of Jesus. Who is the Christ? Whose son is he? And that we would behold the glory and the goodness of who he actually is, not who we assume him to be. So, Father, be with us now by your spirit. Enlighten our minds, enlighten our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, again, the question we're asking of this text is, is what happens when we come face to face with the real Jesus, the reality of who Jesus is? And in this short interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, I think we see that three things happen. Jesus exposes our assumptions. Jesus challenges our assumptions. And and finally, that Jesus overwhelms our assumptions. He exposes, he challenges, and he overwhelms our assumptions. So look with me first at verses 41 to 42, where we see how Jesus exposes our assumptions. So so Matthew sets the stage in verse 41 uh, by saying, while the Pharisees were still gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Just a few verses earlier in verse 34, Matthew describes the Pharisees with the same language, saying they gathered together. And I'd never picked up on this before, but but Pastor Fritz mentioned last week that that's the same language as Psalm 2 to describe the way the rulers of the earth gather together against God's anointed, against the Messiah. See, Matthew is continuing to cue us into a reality that there's a fundamental hostility and hardness of heart that lies behind the questions that have been lobbed at Jesus by the Pharisees and Sadducees throughout this chapter. And he's also cueing us in to who Jesus is. And yet we've seen the last few weeks that Jesus has patiently handled each of these questions in turn. And, and with each answer, Jesus is drawing out the faulty or, or at the very least incomplete assumptions of his hearers, forcing them, forcing them to ask the question to themselves, who does Jesus think he is? And so finally, in this last chunk of chapter 22, Jesus goes on the offensive and he asks a question in return. And on the surface, it might seem a little bit mundane. He asks, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And the answer the Pharisees give in verse 42 is really the answer any first century Jewish person would have given. Well, he, he's the son of David. See, if there is one thing that any first century Jewish man, woman, or child worth their ilk knew, it was that the Messiah, God's promised deliverer of his people, was to come from David's royal line. It goes all the way back to 2 Samuel 7, which Pastor Fritz read for us a few moments ago, where the Lord comes to Nathan with a promise to give to King David. And he promises, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, but Jesus is not just asking a question of the Christ's earthly genealogy. Rather, he's exposing to the Pharisees an assumption about what kind of person, what kind of deliverer this Christ would be. See, Israel had not been under its own rule f- for hundreds of years. I mean, ever since the exile of God's people in the Old Testament, they'd been ruled by foreign powers, the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, most recently the Romans. And for hundreds of years, Israel had read and hoped in the promise of 2 Samuel 7, a king in David's line who is going to come and free God's people And especially in first century Israel, under the Roman rule, this hope, this promise was palpable. It was in the air. And Jesus, with this seemingly mundane question, is doing something very specific. He's exposing the assumptions that his hearers are holding on to about the Lord's promised deliverer, namely that he would come in the shape of David, in the mold of David, as a conquering earthly king, a purely human political liberator. And what Jesus is going to expose in this passage is that these assumptions, these assumptions were keeping his hearers from recognizing the reality of the Christ standing in front of them, right in front of them. Um, Addie and I moved into a new house this last or a little over a week ago. And on on Tuesday morning, we uh, had our final walkthrough at our apartment to see if we were going to get our security deposit back. And everything was going fine. It was all going well and dandy until we got to the living room. And everything looked good, but then our landlord pointed something out to me. and said, hey, will you fix those blind cords? And suddenly I realized, oh, we had tied up all of the blind cords in our apartment on our window blinds so that our cat Hogarth couldn't get to them because he loves to uh, bat at them and try to chew the little plastic caps off the ends of them, and so we had tied them up to be out of his reach. So we were asked to untangle them, and and what followed was a deeply frustrating, seemingly futile and endless effort to untangle these cords from one another. Following every single little thread around the back, through back through the bottom, up back through the top, trying to make holes big enough to get these little plastic caps back through. It was frustrating. But the reality was that unless we untangled the cords, unless we untangled these blind cords, the blinds couldn't open and close like they were intended to do. And that's not so dissimilar from what we see Jesus doing with this question, whose son is the Christ? See, He's exposing a set of assumptions of who the Christ is, a purely human political liberator and deliverer. And he's saying, look, you need to see these and recognize that these assumptions have created a tangle. A tangle that, much like a tangled blind cord, is keeping you from seeing the reality of who the Christ actually is. So so what happens when we meet the reality of who Jesus is, the real Jesus? Well, we see first that he exposes our assumptions. So, So what about us? are we willing to hear this question of Jesus, what do you think about the Christ, as an opportunity to acknowledge the tangled cords of our own assumptions about who Jesus is, that keep us from seeing the reality of who he is, the truth of who he is. You know, for some of us, it's the assumption of the way that Jesus would vote, which which political party he would align with. For some of us, it's actually the the assumption that Jesus prefers America. (laughs) For for others of us, it's the people that we assume Jesus would spend time with and the people he would steer clear of. For still others of us, it's the issues we think Jesus would, would think are big deals and which he wouldn't. And it's in the face of all these tangled assumptions that Jesus puts this question to us whether we're new to the church or whether we've been following Jesus for years, whether we've been a part of God's family for years, are are we willing to hold our hands open and allow scripture to expose to us the tangled knot of assumptions that are actually blinding us to the greater glory, the greater goodness of who Jesus actually is? And so we see that that Jesus, Jesus exposes our assumptions But but we really need need more than just to see our assumptions, don't we? And in verses 43 to 45, Jesus actually goes further than just exposing. He goes to challenging these assumptions. Look look at verse 43. Uh, The Pharisees' answer uh, to Jesus' initial question serves to set up Jesus' real question. And that's a challenge aimed directly at the limited assumption, the limited idea of who this Christ would be. The Pharisees say, well, he would be David's son. And Jesus asks, well, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Now, just as an aside, I think it's worth noting, do you notice that Jesus actually upholds the inspiration of scripture here and our doctrine of inspiration? He says, David in the spirit calls him Lord. I think it's beautiful that, that Jesus points out that it's not just David's words, it's not just a man's words, but it's also not just David in a trance, and the Spirit speaking. But it's, it's, a, it's a mysterious working of human agent, divine authorship. Now, that's just an aside, but I think it's worth noting. But, but Jesus asks this question, how is it then that David calls him Lord? And he argues it by quoting Psalm 110. And what we need to know about Psalm 110 is that it would have been universally accepted by Jesus' listeners as both messianic, that is looking forward to the future reign of God's chosen Deliverer, and it would have been universally accepted as written by David. And Jesus quotes just the very first verse of this psalm, and that demonstrates two telling but kind of confusing pieces of information about the Christ. First, that even great King David calls this Lord, calls this Messiah Lord or Master. In other words, Jesus is asking the Pharisees, okay, if we're to look for someone who merely comes out of David, someone who is only in the kingly mold of great King David, how is it that David calls, David himself calls him master? See, even even if the Jewish people were looking for David's greater son, which they were, they knew that this son of David was going to, his accomplishments were going to be far beyond even David's accomplishments, but they would have never referred to him as David's Lord. They would never refer to the son of David as David's Lord. I mean, think, of, think of your own family. How strange or, and foreign would it be, no matter your age, whether you're in middle school, whether you're 60 years old, if, if your parents called you sir or ma'am, How strange and foreign would it feel for you to refer to your children as Mr. and Miss? And how much stranger, how much more foreign in a culture in which the father was the greatest person of the family. That's why Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is, is called the God of our fathers. Because the father was the center of the family. It was just assumed that the son was less significant than the father. And yet Jesus says David calls him Lord. Well, the second piece of confusing information about the Christ is the relationship between this mysterious Lord figure, David's Lord, and the Lord, the Lord. That's Yahweh, the covenant king of Israel. See, David says, the Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What David is saying in this psalm then is that this Messiah is offered a position of total equality, total power, total authority and victory that also belongs to the God of Israel, Yahweh himself. So how then is he David's son? See, Jesus, Jesus, is, not, Jesus is not denying that the Messiah would come from Matthew 1, where Matthew gives a genealogy of Jesus, Matthew goes to great lengths to show that Jesus is indeed a son of David. Rather, this is how one commentator puts it, which I thought was so succinct and profound. He says, Jesus is attempting to pry open his hearer's mind to the possibility that the future Messiah will be more than a son of David more than even David's glorious successor. So Jesus, having asked in verse 43, okay, okay, Pharisees, if the Christ is the son of David, how is it that David calls him Lord? He asked that in 43. He then flips the question in verse 45. Did you notice that? Verse 45, he asks the opposite question. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? See, Jesus is... is Challenging the Pharisees, he's painting them into a proverbial corner between a rock and a hard place. You know, if you'll return to the image of those tangled blind cords for just a moment, it's as if Jesus is pulling at both ends of those cords and he's almost tightening that seemingly unbreakable, unsolvable knot. And he's allowing his hearers, allowing his opponents to feel the tension, to feel the seemingly uh, un- unbreakable, mysterious image of this Messiah. How can he be both David's Lord and David's son? See, Jesus is is pressing the Pharisees. He's pressing them to push beyond their assumption of whose son the Messiah is by pointing to the words of David himself. And he's showing them, he's asking them to see the ways in which their assumptions fall woefully short of who the Messiah is. So, what happens when we when we come face to face with the real Jesus? Well, he he exposes our our assumptions, yes, but he also challenges them. And I think the same is true for us. I, I think we need to ask ourselves: when was the last time I felt stretched and challenged by the reality of who Jesus is? I think particularly in our circles, in reformed circles, and in our denomination, I think we place a premium, a high premium, on what we know to be true, on what we've figured out, on our perfectly articulated theology and convictions about who Jesus is, what he came to do and why, and and please, please hear me, please hear me that these are not bad things. I love reformed theology, I love our denomination, but I wonder if in the endeavor of, of figuring it out, if we're prone to lose sight of the mystery of God given to us in Christ. I wonder if we are prone to turn Jesus as our Messiah into a subject to study and master instead of a divine king to be mastered by, to be ruled by. Perhaps we would do well to begin by soaking, by coming to scripture with empty hands not assuming we have it figured out, not assuming we have all the answers, but coming with empty hands and soaking in the mystery of who Jesus says he actually is. As the one who was born in a hay trough in a stable next to farm animals, who lived the life of a carpenter and who died the death of a common criminal for our sake. And on the other hand, who is also the one who promises he's coming again to ride on the clouds in glory as a victorious king until his enemies are put under his feet. There's mystery, there's glory that we cannot fathom in the gospel. So we see that the real Jesus, it it exposes our assumptions and it challenges them. But but we also see finally that, that... the reality of who Jesus is, it, it flat out overwhelms our assumptions. It blows them clean out of the water. Look with, me, look with me at 46, where we see the Pharisees' response. Jesus asks his question in 45, the final challenge to the Pharisees' assumption of, of who the Christ will be. You know, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And then Matthew records in verse 46, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Why? Because Jesus had led his opponents to the precipice of a startling confession. All through this chapter, Jesus is little by little showing them the woeful inadequacy of their assumptions of the Messiah as merely a son of David. He's showing them that this Christ was not less than a son of David, but he was most certainly more than a son of David. And so the question is left ringing in the ears of Jesus' hearers. Who could be both great King David's greater son and his Lord, his master? Who could occupy the seat of God's authority and power with God himself? See, the inevitable answer, and this is what the Pharisees felt, the inevitable answer was that it had to be someone who is not only David's son, but God himself. And that was a bridge that was too far for Jesus' hearers, for the Pharisees. You see, Jesus has turned the table on his opponents, and he's shown that what lies behind the questions that have been lobbed at him throughout this chapter, questions about, well, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Questions about, well, who's, who is she married to in heaven, Jesus? And questions about what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? What, what's li- what lies behind these questions Jesus is showing is a woefully inadequate answer to the, to the real question, and that is, who is the Christ? And on the other side, lying behind Jesus' answers to these questions has been Jesus' unrelenting zeal for God, as one commentator puts it. Why? Because what Jesus is showing is that as the Christ, he is the eternal son of God and son of David, divine and Davidic king. And so as Matthew says, no one spoke a word. The Pharisees could not follow him there. And as as others have noted, I, I think that this question is left hanging in the air without an answer for a reason. And I think it's partly for our sake. Because the reality of who Jesus says he is as God himself, it ought ought to do what it did to the Pharisees. It ought to overwhelm every one of our preconceived notions of who he is. And it ought to force on us the same question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And what the Pharisees knew and what what we should know is that if we, are, if we acknowledge and believe what Jesus says to be true about himself, the only thing to do is to submit ourselves to his kingly rule. One moment. I, I, I came across a quote this morning. It's, it's interesting. I was in my office looking back through my sermon one last time, and I, I pulled up Facebook. And, and on, my, on my memories from, from my first semester at, at Covenant Seminary, there was a book that we had to read called The Call by Oz Guinness. Uh, who's a famous uh, apologist, and and Os Guinness uh, had a quote that I think is, is is perfectly suited to this point. He says, "All too often, our familiarity with the Gospels breeds inattention." As Dietrich Bonhoeffer insisted, the response of the disciples is an act of obedience, not a confession of faith in Jesus. They did not consider his claims, make up their minds, and then decide whether to follow. They simply heard and obeyed. Their response is a testimony to the absolute, direct, and unaccountable authority of Jesus. The call is all. Jesus is the reason. The only way to follow is to leave everything and follow him. Here is a call that makes short work of all our questions, objections, and evasions. Disciples are not so much those who follow as those who must follow. See, when we come face-to-face with the real Jesus and we hear what he actually says about himself, and if we accept what he says about himself, the only thing to do is to submit ourselves to his kingly rule. And I I don't know how you hear that, I would be willing to guess that, that for some of us, we're thinking, yes, okay, we get it. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Check, uh, can we move on to something a little bit more difficult? You know, maybe the question, maybe, maybe the question that Jesus forces on us uh, feels a little bit disconnected, a little bit abstract from our daily lives, sort of weightless. Like, what is, it, what is Jesus as king, as divine David king, what does it have to do with my Tuesday morning? Or maybe it sounds a little old and tired, something you've kind of moved on from. Or maybe it even sounds a little oppressive. Like, why would I, why, why would I want to submit myself to, to any king, let alone Jesus? Uh, I, w- I was meeting with someone uh, just the other day. We were hanging out and talking about, uh, we happened to be talking about just kind of like how the gospel goes from something that I know to something that I do, to a life of obedience. And and this person made this comment, something to the effect of, you know, it's hard for it to matter to you until it becomes beautiful to you. And I think the same is true of our answer to the question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? I think that that question will only matter to us to the extent to which we actually find the image of Jesus as king, divine and Davidic king, God and man, the extent to which we find that image to be a beautiful picture. And nowhere do I think is that picture painted more beautifully than than in the psalm that Jesus quotes, Psalm 110. And, And the New Testament writers picked up on this because starting here, Psalm 110 becomes one of, if not the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. So what, what kind of king does it describe? I just want you to listen for a moment. You can turn to Psalm 110 if you want, but I also just want to let, these, let this image wash over you. Verse one, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, David is saying Jesus is a conquering king who defeats all his enemies. So that means that for, for those of us who belong to his rule and reign, who belong to his kingdom, that means Jesus is a king who also defeats our enemies greatest enemies. Even death and sin and Satan himself. Verse 2, it says, the Lord sends forth your royal scepter from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. It means Jesus is an advancing king. His kingdom work is not done. It continues through his people, his church. That's us. That's why his final words to his disciples in Matthew 28 are, go and make disciples of all nations. His kingdom is actively and inevitably marching forward and expanding until all the earth is under his kingly rule. Abraham Kuyper, a theologian at the turn of the 20th century, said it this way. You may have heard this, this, uh, this quote. There is not, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord of all, does not exclaim, Mine. That means that on your Tuesday morning, there is no aspect of your life, there's no aspect of our life or this world that is beyond the reach of the kingly rule of Jesus as the Christ. And that means that for those who belong to it, those who belong to his rule and reign, your workplace, your school, your neighborhood, your very home is the place where Christ's scepter is moving forward. But Jesus is not just a king of rule. He's also a king of relationship. Verse verse four, the psalmist says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, Jesus is a priestly king. See, the only way that Israel could have relationship with their holy covenant king, Yahweh, was through the ministry of the priests, going for them into the temple, interceding for them, going into the very the very center of the temple where where Yahweh's presence was, and offering sacrifice, sprinkling the, the blood of bulls and lambs on the altar to atone for sin. Sacrifice was the only way the people of God could enjoy relationship with God. And so when the psalmist says you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, he's saying that Jesus, as our high priest, has offered one perfect and final sacrifice, not of goat or lamb, but of himself. He has entered the Holy of Holies for us. He has gone in and is interceding before the Father for us, sprinkling his own blood, his own perfect and spotless blood on the altar. And in doing so, as we find out from the crucifixion narrative, in doing so, he tears down the curtain that separates us from the presence of God. And he invites us, welcomes us in even, to the royal throne room of God himself. By faith in his work on our behalf, back into full and lasting relationship. He's not just a ruling king, he's also a sacrificial, loving king. A king who not only rules in the midst of his enemies, but turns his enemies into his friends. See, the question we're left with, it's the same question as the Pharisees. Who is the Christ? And when we see the answer to that question in the glory of Jesus as both fully God and fully man, divine and Davidic king, what we find is the reality of who Jesus is is so much greater than anything we could imagine him to be. And when that happens, we start to find him beautiful. Beautiful. We're actually freed to respond like Peter did when the question was asked of him, where he said, "Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." Friends, that's a response of, of joyful and humble submission. See what happens when we come to Jesus, when we come face to face with the real Jesus, as our assumptions are overwhelmed in the light of who Jesus is. He's so much greater than our assumptions. Let us respond in obedience and faith. Let me pray for us. Father, God, we we praise you for who you are. We praise you as, as our king. We thank you, Father, for your son, for the fact that he is both fully God and fully man, that he shares in your glory and power and victory, And that hidden in him, we do as well. Father, my prayer is that as we go from here, Father, let let the beauty, the glory of who your son is, let it not grow stale to us. Let it be as fresh to us today as it has been, as it was the first day we heard it. We ask for your spirit's help. And we pray, pray these things in your son's name. Amen.